0: I, I heard someone, someone who was, a, uh, you know, a civil rights activist in the, in the, in the '60s, read something yesterday, in which she said, "Well, I, I'd, I'd like to, um, I'd like to believe that if Obama was still president, then we would see the same level of support for BLM amongst the white community that we do now." But she was not very positive about it.
1: Hey, everybody! Thanks for checking out our new podcast, Understanding Our Place in the World. The podcast is brought to you by the Department of Psychology at the University of Essex. My name is Philip Cozzolino, and I'm an experimental social psychologist at Essex. My guest today for this first episode is Dr. Rael Daughtry. Rael is also an experimental social psychologist at Essex. He specializes in the psychology of justice. We sat down recently at a safe distance and had a conversation about his work and about justice-related matters in the context of COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement. So, good morning, Rael. Thanks for joining uh, the podcast. I've been looking forward to having you on and talking with you. Yeah, morning, Philip. Why don't you um, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your background?
0: My background, I'm a, uh, I, I'm an Essex graduate, actually. I did my degree <laughs> at Essex, a good few Years ago, now and then, um, and then, I returned to Essex. I came back to do a masters. I did the uh, the research methods masters at Essex, and off the back of that, I got some got some research work. I worked with uh, you know Mitch, our, our former colleague at uh, Essex um, for a few years. Is doing a kind of um, pre
1: Mitchell ca- Mitchell Callan now. Mitchell
0: uh, yep. yeah, that's right, yeah, uh, and then. After that, I went off to do my PhD at Kent with uh, Robbie Sutton and then I came back to Essex. I came back to uh, work with Mitch on a postdoc and um, kind of stayed really. I've been at Essex since I've got a a lecturing post and that's where I am
1: now. Tell me a little bit about your work with uh, Robbie Sutton at Kent in terms of your PhD thesis. What uh, What was the focus there?
0: yeah my phd was um, about how people um, perceive and model how wealth and incomes are distributed in um, quite a cold cognitive sense so we drew on a a a a model the inspiration from it was some research that suggests that um, you know people make judgments about um, social distributions how the different attributes that people have, there's a range of things. So, you know, how much wealth people have, or, you know, what they like to eat or drink, many things, um, really, you know, how many friends you have, how much stress you experience. So of course, we encounter, you know, people in our day to day lives and we, you know, who are relatively closer or more distance to us, and, you know, we learn about where they stand on different attributes, you know, we make estimates about how wealthy they are, and from these repeated interactions from, from our, uh, with, you know, people that we know, we can come to form a perception of, you know, perhaps how, you know, um, certain attributes are distributed across uh, the population more broadly. One consequence of this is there's a, a, a term that sociologists use homophily um, or you probably heard the, f- the phrase birds of a feather fly Not together sure. so the idea that you know people who are who are like tend to be um, tend to know others who are more relatively like them and this is very pervasive it applies to uh, 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 many attributes that people have including their wealth so we kind of reason from this that you know insofar as you know relatively poorer people live in poor areas uh and vice versa wealthier people live in wealthy areas and are more o- relatively overexposed in their day-to-day interactions to relatively more wealthy people and you might develop a perception uh if you base your you know your your um judgments about how wealthy people are in general uh on your social circle um then your, your understanding of how wealth is distributed, how wealthy people are on average, um, your perception of inequality and so on is, is, is partly determined by your own attributes. If you're relatively wealthier, you should know relatively more wealthy people and vice versa. I think that, you know, the, um, the population as a whole is a bit more wealthy relative to uh, someone who's poorer. So the notion is in a
1: sense, you get anchored to some sort of sense of reality based on the people and the sort of the the class that you are embedded in?
0: Essentially, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so if I asked you to, um, you know, so the methodology we use, we ask people to, uh, you know, how wealthy they are. And then we ask them to estimate, you know, the proportion of people that they know personally, um who earn incomes in certain bands and then we ask people to estimate um what the distribution of wealth is uh, to do the same task but for the wider population And what we find is that you know people's own income positively predicts you know the wealth of their social circle so wealthier people estimate that you know say that they they know relatively more wealthy people and as a consequence they estimate that the population as a whole is a, is mm. wealthier those things are all, all positively correlated People care about, you know, the, the difference between incomes, inequality. They care about, you know, how wealthy people are on average, um, extant levels of poverty in society and so on. So our reasoning is that, you know, these these how we perceive that these principles operate in practice in society, how much need there is, how much, you know, how wealthy society is in general is uh, 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 in in large part a reflection of um, their day to day social environment and their interactions with close others one thing that seems to be the case is that um, perhaps there's some evidence to suggest that wealthier people depreciate their relative position so if you ask um, if you ask someone you know what what where do you stand in the distribution of income what percentage of people earn an income that is below you um and of course you can calculate where people objectively stand based on you know the the real true underlying um, distribution of incomes um, and then you can ask people about their perceptions so the um the gap in those perceptions what what happens is that wealthier people are more prone to underestimate their their standing than our poor than our poorer people poorer people are relatively more accurate and this is partly a, a function of um the the, the, you know the fact that the income distribution is 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 positively skewed there's a relatively mm. greater mass of people towards you know the lower end of the income distribution and fewer um, towards
1: the top end. The main reason uh, that I was excited about having you on to talk about uh, what I your your sort of more dominant uh, focus over the last few years which has been research into the psychology of justice. yeah sure so uh, my more recent work and the, and the the earlier work I've you know
0: I've done in my my postdocs and so on has been very focused on uh, a model um, called belief in a belief in a just world and I think this is this is perhaps not the the best term for it is sometimes described hmm. as the justice uh, motives. This model comes from some some seminal research by uh, Mel- Melvin Lerner and his colleagues in the in the nineteen sixties. Melvin Lerner was was interested in um, you know this um, uh, this notion about how we how we respond to other people's misfortune. Mel, Melvin Lerner up this very elaborate situation in which he had participants come into the lab in um, groups and he had amongst this group was a, uh, a, a what, what's called a, a confederate so someone who's not really a participant unbeknownst to the participants is actually working with the experimenter and the 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 participants are told you know you, you you're here to take part in a a learning study and we're going to nominate one of you to um, to be the learner in this task it's like um, you know you have to read out you'll be read out a list of nonsense syllables that are paired with other syllables and then you know in the task the person who is the learner um, has to remember what the the correct response and if they give the correct response Um, And then we move on to the next trial and so on. But if they don't, they'll be punished. And the punishment in this task was that the learner would receive uh, electric shocks. It was always the confederate who was nominated to be the learner in the task. And the actual participants were told that you're going to observe the learner. We want you to observe them and make some judgments about how they respond in the task and so on. Um, and participants they watched this task. They w- watched it via uh, uh, what they were led to believe was a live video feed of the the, the, the confederate undertaking this this task. But it was in actual fact a, a staged video. It was it was pre-recorded. And um, throughout the course of this procedure, about ten minutes long, the participants are watching um, this young woman responding in the task, and um, she be- the task becomes harder and harder, and she begins to receive. Uh, ever more electric shocks and becomes distressed and it's quite it's very convincing if you watch the video it's very unpleasant this woman receiving these um, these shocks uh, and afterwards the participants were asked to make a number of judgments so for example uh, about the woman's um, character how much you know kind of roughly how much how how much they like the woman you know how good a person she is and what Mel Lerner found was that when people had the expectation uh, that the young woman would continue to suffer from the electric shocks, that they evaluated her character uh, less favorably. They seemed to they seemed to uh, like her less. They seem to um, this is a phenomenon uh, known as victim derogation. It's really the the bedrock of just world theory. And Mel Lerner interpreted this as um, you know uh, the idea that when we see someone suffering, there are different ways we can we can respond. Uh, Mel Leonard, he says, says that you know we we are all deeply concerned with justice for a number of reasons. We want to see that people get what they deserve, including ourselves. You know we're motivated to believe that you know if we work hard, we we do certain things, we're a good person, then good things will come to us kind of like karma the idea that you know you yourself you and other people get what
1: we deserve so the the notion being that uh if i perceive um or come to some some view that the world really isn't just isn't fair that that people don't get what they deserve that would be difficult for me to wake up in the morning and go to my job and do the things that i'm supposed to do because what what's the point is that sort of the notion here yeah. so i need in, to because underlying my motives is this need to see the world as fair and just because that's what enables me to in engage in the world yeah indeed certainly so there's a a, a,
0: a, a fair bit of research that and um, um, explicitly ties uh, the justice motive to um, people's investment in long-term goals, for example. So we find that um, you know when 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 this motive is threatened, that people are less willing to invest um, time and effort in achieving uh, you know f- rewards in the future. Because of course, if the world is a capricious, uncertain place, where you can walk out your door and you know even if you're a good person, you just get hit by a bus. You know that is that is threatening, and that thwarts your your motivation to um, to function, to go out and invest in um, ob- obtaining things which are you know c- conditional on the idea that you know if you if
1: you do something that should bring about some reward that you'll get that reward one way that we can deal with seeing that sometimes the world is capricious sometimes good people get hit by buses um is to say well perhaps there was something about that person um that made that bad outcome justified right in a sense we we to reconcile that that problem, we start to—I guess the word would be blame. We start to blame the victim. Is that kind of what the model suggests? Yes, definitely.
0: Yeah. So blame and blame and derogation are closely linked. So der- derogation means to. So what in in Learner's original research, as I said, what um, what Mel found was that you know um, people devalue the character of the of the of the victim when they expect that she's going to continue to suffer or in other conditions when she suffers to a greater versus a lesser degree. And the reason is that the reasoning behind this is is that, you know, if you um, you can perceive that someone is a less good person, therefore they're they're not as undeserving as this inexplicable, unfortunate fate which has befallen them. So blame is more, blame is is similar, but blame is more focused on behavior. It's like saying, you know, um, uh, you know, that 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 terrible thing happened to that person because they behaved in a certain way, because they did a certain thing. But the idea is that they serve the same motive, whether we're explaining someone's misfortune, their suffering um, by devaluing their character or by, seeking out some behavior which makes them deserving of their fate it's a means by which we can we can defend we can fend off uh, this threat to the idea that people get what they deserve we're bringing someone's behavior or their character
1: um, into line with the um, the the value of their outcome there are some major models in our field in social psychology that deal with justice and justice-related matters um, at different levels. Um, but they all seem to, in my view, kind of accomplish, uh, the processes all seem to accomplish the same thing for us psychologically. And that is belief in a just world, learners' work, which we've just been talking about, another uh, major theory known as social dominance theory uh, from Sedanius Z- and Prado, uh, and uh, system justification theory, largely from John Joost. And when you combine all these models, it, it, there is this sense that we have a psychology, both socially group-based and individually, that really does work to maintain uh, status quos of injustice, uh, or at least perceived injustice, right? That, that it, it, it is in the human uh, sort of condition to, uh, maybe at, at a default level, to sort of try to, at the very least, overlook or uh, sort of reframe p- potential injustice, uh, but in some cases even in a more motivated way to, s- to actually say, well, there's a reason that this is occurring, and that allows me to to continue moving forward. Would you agree with generally that frame of some of these models?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think that's a, a really good summary. I mean, they, they, they certainly all pertain to that idea, you know, that we um, – whether on an individual or a group level, you know, that we we are prone to uh, rationalize injustice. I think it's, it's at the, um, the core of all those models, be it just wealth or, you know, rationalizing the, the suffering of individuals or um, system justification theories, you know, rationalizing injustices on a more um, broad uh, societal level. Yeah.
1: What did we want? No justice. When did we want it? No. No No justice. No peace. No justice. No peace. No justice. No peace. Things seem again, you know. There we're social psychologists, we're experimental social psychologists, but but from an observational perspective, it does seem that things are changing, and perhaps that always is a slow change. Um, but I I sort of look out the the window, if you will, and look at what seems to be happening uh, in in society. Mm-hmm. Little by little, again, it's it's not 100% clearly, but it does seem today, especially now in the wake of, uh, obviously, the most recent things like uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis and Breonna Taylor, uh, and and when we obviously have a history of uh, black uh, individuals uh, being uh, sort of violently uh, either killed or at least treated by people in authority, those at the top of the justice paradigm. And the world seems now more than ever to at least be engaging in conversations of this is not just. And even though I don't come from that particular community, um, I want to actually express my dissatisfaction with this perceived injustice Uh, more so than what we've been talking about models in our field that suggest that we would just sit back and go, well, I guess they, they reaped what they sowed. Do you agree that it feels like at this time in this era of COVID and Black Lives Matter protests globally, that, that some of these models of, of, of persisting injustice and accepting it are at least starting to crack a, a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think perhaps we
0: we as psychologists, we have, um, you know, we're psychologists, we study beliefs and motivations and things that are in people's heads. But I think sometimes we um, we we're so focused on those things and and that we um, perhaps underestimate, you know, or, or, or fail to account for things that are more broadly sociological and and political and, and, and so on. In, for example, Just World Theory, this idea that, you know, well, you know, that much of that research is, you know, reflects the idea that, or, or, or examines people's tendency to rationalize Injustice to psychologically render the world a just place by, you know, distorting your 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 perception of of events. Yet at the same time, at the core of the theory is the idea that we are we are deeply concerned with justice, that we do this because, you know, needing needing to see justice in the world is 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 something that we we all have to, uh, um, to, to some degree. And of course, rationalising, rationalising is not the only possible response. So actually, we find that there are there are different ways that you can, you can um respond to injustice so one is to rationalize it to blame and derogate victims but of course in so far as you're able to do so people will respond by trying to uh, undo injustice so for example coming back to you know learners classic work he found that when when participants had the opportunity to compensate The learner, the victim of the of the shocks. That they did not derogate her character. And the reasoning being that, you know, if we can take different actions are available that restore justice, we can compensate someone for their suffering, we can do something that attempts to make the world a more just place in an objectively speaking, then we don't there is less of a need to do that and the extent to which people will engage in one or the other, you know, rationalization versus, you know, attempts to, uh, material, more material attempts to restore justice depends on a number of factors. So, you know, um, you know, whether it's, you know, what can be done, what means are available to you to attempt to make the world, um, a just place, how, you know, other, other factors and motivation might lead you to, um, to do that and for you know for example how simply how in your face and egregious the injustice that you're Mm -hmm. facing is so I think you know talking about um um George Floyd I think you know the the um this particular event and the video footage and so on is such an in your face you know Mm -hmm. um uh powerful um you know image that perhaps you know there is a limit to the extent to which we can we can engage in you know rationalizing and undoing injustice but of course it also depends on your own your own you know other beliefs you know other beliefs and um motivations and you know how you're how you're prone to um perceive that event in the in the First place.
1: I think it's. A, I think this is a, such an interesting part of this conversation because I'm. I'm. Re, I'm looking right now uh, on my screen, and, and anyone listening, I recommend you go to this. Uh, it's called Civics, C-I-V-I-Q-S. It was uh, cited in a recent New York Times article, and they have an incredibly well laid out. Uh, so sort of, we like data, we're researchers, uh, and it's it's visual data, but it's meaningful data. It's from the states, so it's it's American data, uh, but 121,000 people responding, going all the way back to May of 20. 2017. 2017. And this is just specifically, I'm looking at uh, support or oppose the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a a movement that on its website talks about a a movement and hopes for justice in a particular context. And if you go back to May 2017 in the States, uh, there was 41% opposed, 38% uh, supported and some manchures and such. And that, if you move forward in time, which you can on this really nice website, you get to the, f- two years ago the summer with the Charlottesville, Virginia uh, rally, which led to some violence and an unfortunate murder uh, of a woman, but it was based around the removal of a Confederate statue. That was sort of the core of the whole uh, issue, the rally and the protest. And basically that 4138 that started well before that rally doesn't change all the way. I mean, I can Move all the way up until 2020, and it's 4232 uh, instead of 4138. So the oppose dropped slowly over time, but the support didn't increase at all. Uh, again, nationally speaking, but here's where you start to see the first incline of support, uh, which is actually not George Floyd, not Breonna Taylor, not Philando Castile, not Eric Garner, not all these people who have been in the news of being sort of black uh, men and women uh, killed. But when the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, first re- announced that COVID 19 deaths were uh, disproportionately affecting uh, people uh, by uh, who were non-white, uh, black and brown, and suddenly the slope starts increasing dramatically. And then, yeah, George Floyd hits shortly after that, and it goes up even more. And we stand here today with support at fifty percent and opposition in the low thirties. Um, so, it, it, to me, it's it, it, the George. You're correct. The George Floyd thing. Uh, was just as you say, so in your face, so so much of a catalyst, uh, a catalyst of, of uh, it seems in our time uh, to to move people toward justice. Uh, but in fact, it was actually uh, what a surprise. 2020, it, it, this this coronavirus uh, issue is actually potentially even predating uh, that, uh, and people starting to realize that hey, you know, we're all in this same boat together. We're all potentially threatened by this virus. But it does seem, for many reasons that are sociological. And, and in other ways uh, affecting uh, disproportionately people of color. And that starts this movement towards Black Lives Matter gaining more and more support. So again, uh, sorry for the monologue, but I, I think it's just an interesting time that we can look to the George Floyd uh, killing and 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 of course all sorts of instances like it, um, but it's this shared experience of COVID that might actually have been the most important sort of uh, base for us to start thinking about uh justice
0: well, i i have heard you know one suggested explanation which is very mundane which is quite simply that you know when when uh, um, you know we have lots of lots of people furloughed and working from home mm. and businesses just shut down and there's a lot you know there's a lot less in the media that's kind of crowded out. And people have more time and they consume more information. Or well, perhaps it's you know it's, it just partly reflects the fact that people are more aware. They have more time to be aware. They have more time to um, think about these issues and engage with them. And and so on. And that might have,
1: um, you know, of course, that might that might give some partial explanation. Looking at some of these data and trying to like just trying to make sense of how we've come from a time where there was such pushback against a movement that was saying we should take down statues of Confederate Civil War generals who supported slavery uh, and such pushback and not a lot of support for that group. And then we come today where even in the UK, they're good, bad and different, right, wrong. You could have different perspectives on it, but people are actually demanding themselves taking down statues their state of mississippi is removing the confederate flag from its state flag the imagery of that flag so things have changed so dramatically in two years and in the context of justice and writing past injustices to the extent that that's possible we have this large you know collective um
0: global threat to the extent that you know Mm -hmm. is it's put something that is um playing a role in you know certain social events that we that we see occurring um, at the moment. That it 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 it, it certainly you know at, at the very least it does not um, it 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 challenges you know some of the some of the assumptions in um,
1: some of some core theories in justice and political psychology. I think. Yeah, definitely. And what's really interesting, if you go to that civics website with the data, if you drill down into those, again, this specifically looking just at support for the Black Lives Matter movement, the increase over that time from 2017 till now is largely driven by because you can separate it out and look at only support among uh, white Americans versus black uh, and uh, other minority Americans. And it's the, the, the increase is largely driven by just increased support recently among white Americans. Um, so there is this sense of people again, just you know, it's 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 you know, ten percent you know over the last month or so. It's just interesting that models that talk a lot about self-interest and uh, how can some how, if you know, if I can conceive that person who's experiencing the injustice as other. Right, someone who is not from me or like me, it's a lot easier uh, to distance myself from them and perhaps even derogate them or blame them. And yet, here it is for some reason. in this time, uh, it is uh, white Americans in this data, in these data, uh, suggesting that there's something's changing. Something seems to be okay. Perhaps it's time. I,
0: I think one very important consideration is that one we are uh, we're in an election year. Mm. Yeah, the U.S. I think this is stuff is very heavily bound up with political partisanship as well. I think there are you know a lot of young um, Americans who are, you know very you know strongly um, opposed to and unsettled by um, by the Trump presidency. Uh, and I, I heard someone someone who was a, a you know a civil rights activist in the in the in the sixties read something yesterday in which she said, Well I I'd I'd like to um, I'd like to believe that if Obama was still president, then we would see the same level of support for BLM amongst the white community that we do now. But she was not very positive about it. And her explanation is that partly, you know, is it not that it's, you know, that it's, it's regardless. I mean, to see support for that movement is, you know, a, a positive outcome. But her interpretation is that a lot of it is more bound up with, um opposition to Trump and, um, political partisanship more, more generally than it is necessarily, um, uh, 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 an awakening of, you know, a, broad, a broad-based a broad awakening of, of white people to, and you know, expanding interest in is- issues of racial
1: justice specifically. Not to say that that doesn't necessarily um, play a role. I think this last point, though, is incredibly important. I'm so glad that you brought it up because I actually think that, you know, absolutely correct. It will be, and, and the thing is, is, to some extent, there will be, you know, there won't really be the control group, but we will be able to test that theory, right? Because let's assume right now that there are many national polls in the United States that show that uh, Joe Biden would likely win an election if it was held today. There's still three, four months to go. Who knows what happens? Um, So the idea is, okay, maybe it's not Barack Obama, but what happens if Uh, Trump isn't reelected and all of this sort of upset among these people that you just described, these young, white, uh, more left-leaning individuals who are using Black Lives Matter as a proxy for that, what happens then, right? Do they continue that support? Do they continue hitting the streets and demanding, oh, defund the police and all the things that they're demanding? (laughs) Or does the change in president sort of suffice and say, okay, uh, I feel better now? Um, And then it gets back to sort of status quo. Definitely. Yeah, I think it is, uh, you know, obviously it's an open question and it is a
0: a, a fascinating one. You know, I think you see um, these, you know, these social justice movements, you know, um and certain concerns about justice become prominent at different times and you know interest and support for these causes does rise and fall over time
1: yeah for, for those of you out there listening who whoever they may be who aren't at all engaged with any sort of these uh, whether it's black lives matter or any kind of uh, sort of organization looking to sort of leverage this time and this this motive uh this motivation that is on the streets globally take it from two experimental social psychologists if you find uh, a Joe Biden presidency in January of 2021, you might have a lot more work on your hands to do to keep people <laughs> active, to keep them motivated, right? because yeah, there yeah. may be a tendency for some people on that side of the political aisle to think, "Woo, job done, and it's time to speak i right
0: now. I, I think so. I, I suspect. I mean, I hope. I hope that is um, we're, we're being too pessimistic there but i would (laughs) i would i would agree i think now is the time to you know to harness that that energy and make sure that it is sustained you know and that we don't just you know go oh you know we've got a biden there's a democrat in office job yeah. done.
1: You can start making some, you know, as we tend to do, some early hypotheses and predictions about that. Let's assume January 2021, there is a new president. Um, and let's assume early in 2021, there is a vaccine for the virus, right? So suddenly that threat is is significantly reduced, jobs start returning, people, it's schools are back. And what happens if in early 2021, they go away? Is there still yeah. this call for justice? Does that persist and I think that'll be a really interesting question that maybe you and I can revisit come early twenty twenty
0: one. Definitely there is a there is a collaboration developing <laughs> as we speak, Philip. I love it.
1: <laughs> well Ray, I'll thank you so much for uh joining me today. I really enjoyed that conversation. I'm looking forward to our collaboration as we move toward twenty twenty one on these new ideas. And um just Thanks again for uh, being a part of this.
0: My my pleasure, Philip. Thanks for for having me. Yeah.
1: All right. Talk soon. soon. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Well, thank you once again for checking out the Understanding Our Place in the World podcast. This podcast was produced by the Department of Psychology at the University of Essex. Make sure to check us out again as we'll have another interview for you to listen to next week.